So, First Corinthians 7 verse 1, I think we come to the, the nub of the problem in interpreting uh, Paul concerning the things whereof you wrote unto me. So, Paul is writing this chapter, and this chapter is probably one of the most difficult chapters uh, in the New Testament, I, I think, to, to really interpret. He's writing this in answer to a set of questions that he's got, and of course we don't know what that set of questions were. But it seems to me that we can, of course, deduce a little bit by looking at his answers and trying to imagine what the questions might have been. But all the same, we're hearing one side of a conversation, and this is what makes it uh, somewhat difficult. So I think all we can do is to go through this, have the best crack we can at trying to understand what he was answering, and yet, most importantly, to try to take out some principles that are relevant for, for us. So then... The first uh, comment I, I would make is that he's writing to the Corinthians, and as we've seen earlier talking about chapter 5 and, and chapter 6, they were pretty weak. And we're going to come on to chapter 11 and see that there was drunkenness at the breaking of bread, there was terrible division, there was a lack of uh, understanding or faith in the resurrection of Jesus and the resurrection of, of the believers in chapter 15 reading between the lines of what he says in chapters 5 and 6 it would seem that there was a pornos that is a male prostitute operating at the breaking of bread meetings we talked about that and we talked about chapters 5 and 6 the whole picture here of the Corinthians is very very poor really and yet and yet here in 1 Corinthians 7 he seems to be answering um, questions relating to should we stay single and forego marriage for the sake of the Lord? And he gives his, uh, his answer to that. And it, it, it's a strange sort of paradox that there was terrible weakness in the Corinthian Ecclesia, and yet there were clearly some who had a very high uh, ambition to serve the Lord on a very high level. And that's what these questions he's answering seem to me to imply. Should we stay single? Because the time is short and the Lord is coming back soon, should we forego marriage? Now, we can uh, learn a few things in reflecting on that. One is that within the same ecclesia there can be very high levels of commitment next door, as it were, to people who really don't get it, either doctrinally or practically, in very serious terms. And you see that, I think, in, in uh, the letters that Jesus writes to the churches in Revelation 2 and 3, that he commends the minority in some of those ecclesias for their faithfulness, and he talks in quite glowing terms about them, and for the Lord Jesus to talk in glowing terms about his, his people here on earth is quite something. And yet, clearly, in those ecclesias, there was also some pretty awful misbehavior. And I think that this is, or should be, a feature of the ecclesia of Christ, that those who are baptized into Christ are members of the body, and yet there is going to be a huge breadth of understanding a huge breadth of behavior and that includes misbehavior it includes misunderstanding etc and there is never the implication that the church should be split that the uh, sort of the good guys the uh, the highly committed ones should get up and walk out and that is i think our natural instinct that i can't stick people who 
misunderstand things uh, about doctrine, people who are living a wrong kind of life, I'm out of here. And so many times this has happened, the mentality of the older son in the parable. If he's coming back, if he's going to be in here, I'm gone. And of course the whole point of that parable really is the, the sin of the older brother, because the younger brother, it's all resolved. And so I think it is that unity amongst us which, as Jesus says in John 17, really should be so powerful it could convert the world. What do we mean by unity? I don't just think it means being nice and kind to each other, loving those who love you within the confines of the Ecclesia, but the unity which there is uh, between people from quite different backgrounds, quite different spiritual levels. Now, talking about spiritual levels, oh, sorry, something I wanted to add in, in, in that context, uh, from God's perspective in heaven and the perspective of Jesus looking down here upon his body, he is very tolerant, it seems to me, of all kinds of people within that body who have been baptized into him, committed themselves to him, and yet they have a range of misunderstandings, of misbehaviors, etc. <clears throat> and yet he is the vine. He doesn't say, I'm the stem and you're the branches. He says, I am the vine and you are the branches. In other words, all of you are part of me. And that mentality that he has should be reflected in us. And that is the whole basis, I think, of our salvation, his tolerance of us. Because although we may consider that we are sound in doctrine and practice, all of us have got a lot of sin and a lot of misunderstanding and a lot of blind points and a lot of personal failure which we may or may not want to admit. It, it may be that in certain moments of stress, of illness, or perceived illness, or fear, physical fear, or whatever, we, we come down a size and we, we fess up and accept that. But most of the time, I think, I fear, we live not thinking that, and our concern is about the other guy, and not about ourselves. So then, this tolerance, this acceptance of others within the body, is, I think, fundamental to our personal salvation. And that is what we've got to reflect in our positions here on earth. And really, ecclesial life, church life, is all there as a training ground so that we might learn grace. And every time we walk away from those we consider to be uh, below, the, below the mark kind of thing, we are failing to learn the lesson. Now, talking about different levels, he, he clearly expounds in this chapter the idea of different levels. He basically starts off by saying it's better, yes, I agree, uh, not, to, uh, not to be married, to give yourself totally to the Lord, but he makes this concession to avoid fornication. Okay, then get married, verse 2. Um, but then he, he, he says that he speaks this, verse 6, uh, by way of permission. But this is a, a concession. And he says to the unmarried, verse 8, it's better to uh, stay single. But if you marry, that's okay. But, verse 10, let not the wife depart from her husband, verse 11. But, and if she depart, let her remain unmarried. So then, he is accepting that there are different levels. And I have talked about this before, and I will say it again, that Either God accepts service to him on different levels, or he is 
legalism's sort of last gasp and just puts up a, a law, a commandment, and says, that's it, if you reach that, good, if you don't, that's it. Life is not like that, it's not all black and white. It is shades of grey when it comes to our personal commitment to, to him. And God so hungers and thirsts for relationship with people that he does accept this these different levels. You see it with the whole thing about building the temple. God said, I don't want a temple. I never wanted one. But, okay, they wanted one to sort of be like all the other nations who had a, a shrine to their God. Okay, he accepted that. The, the glory of God dwelt in the temple. He accepted it. He said it also about having a king. I'm your king. You have a human king, you're rejecting me. Ah, yeah, but we want one. Okay, and he still worked through that system of human kingship. And so, God is prepared to make concessions to human weakness, and this is, I think, particularly the case with, um, with married life and the kind of questions that he's answering here. So then, what should we do? Think, oh, great, God's, uh, God's the soft touch. I will uh, just, what's the minimum I can get away with? We are not to be minimalists. If you love God, or if you love anyone, you don't carefully calculate what's the minimum I can do. And I would argue that the fact that God does accept service to him on different levels is in fact an inspiration to try to serve him on the highest level. Because who here amongst us does not love God? We do love God. And because we love him, we want to serve on the highest level. We're not thinking, what's the minimum I can just scrape away with? And I have given an example before that... If I say to you, look, here I am, I'm given this talk, you know what, I need, a, I need a drink. Can someone get me a drink? Water will be fine. If you could get me milk to soothe my throat, that would be even better. And uh, you know what, a cup of coffee would be even, even better than everything. What are you going to do? You're going to run out to the, to the kitchen here in, in the hall and say... Okay, right, uh, there's water in the tap, right, there you go, Duncan, there's your water, mate. Or you're going to think, uh, have we got any milk? Uh, oh, yeah, we have. Ah, oh, and there's some coffee there. Ah, oh, and there's the jug just uh, boiled. Okay, I'll make the guy coffee. That's what you're going to try to do. Now, if there isn't any milk, or there isn't any coffee, or there isn't any jug, well, okay, you can't do it. Or if you don't want to make the effort to do that. But the fact I gave you three choices, I think, you, if you do I say it, love me, uh, you're going to try to go for the highest level. It's a very simple example. But God is like that. I mean, if God says, look, here's the bar, and if you fail to, to jump that bar, well, that's it. Well, who shall stand? I mean, really, that's the end of it. Now, God deals like that with you and with me all the time, and we deal like that with him, I'm afraid. And what is difficult is to reflect that in our judgment, if you like, of others. In, in our, uh, by judgment, I don't mean, of course, condemning people, but I mean in the opinions we form, and that's part of human life, um, and, and the way that we deal with others in their weakness. You also make use of God's concessions. And if you are married, well, according to this chapter, you have made use of that concession. And you have not taken the highest level, and that's okay. But cut other people some slack in other areas when they also don't rise up to that level. 
Now, on this uh, thing about different levels, um, you, you have it actually right at, at the end of the chapter again, where he talks about widows and says, look, she's free to be married to whom she will, verse 39, only in the Lord, but she's happier if she so abide after my judgment. And I think, and that I, I think is a, 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 an idiom almost for, I am convinced that I have the Spirit of God in saying this. And there's another couple of uh, elements of this different level business in this chapter. One, I think, is in verse 32 and 33, and he says, He that's unmarried cares for the things that belong to the Lord, how he may please the Lord, but he that is married cares for the things that are of the world, how he may please his wife. He seems to parallel the wife with the world. And you have the same at the end of 34. She that is married cares for the things of the world, how she may please her husband. So the partner is being put in parallel with the world. And what he says here, if it's just taken at, at face value, I'm not sure rings true to experience, because if you are married in the Lord, you can have the most wonderful marriage, and I, I am blessed with that myself. And I would not really say that I'm caring for the things of the world because I'm married to Cindy, because she is an absolute believer and committed to the Lord, first and foremost. Now, if I were married to an unbeliever, yes, I could just see this being the case, that I would really be caring for the things of the world, going to that party, that uh, get-together, that whatever it might be that she wants to go to because she's in the world, etc. So I think that the question he's answering here and giving his opinion on is the question of marriage to people in the world, to unbelievers. And he's saying, you know, if you do that, well, you will end up torn between caring for the things of the world and caring for the things of, of God. So I think he's accepting that there would be the phenomena of marriage out of the faith to people in the world. But he's not saying disfellowship them, chuck them out. He's saying, look, if you do that, if you marry someone who's of the world and who's not a believer, well, this is what's going to happen. And that rings true to reality. That rings true to what certainly I've seen over the years of people who choose to marry those who are not believers and who are of the world. So then, he's, he's accepting that this might happen in any mission situation. And Corinth was a, a new-born ecclesia, really, um, they hadn't been baptized that long when Paul's writing to them. In, in any mission situation, you inevitably have this, that uh, people get baptized, but then after a couple of years they want to get married, and they sometimes marry people in the world. And he doesn't say, chuck them out. He says, look, if you do this, this is what's going to happen. And what he says here in that context rings true, I think, to observed uh, reality. Now, there's another one about these different levels, a more difficult one, and it's in verse 20 down to 24, where he starts talking about slaves. And the word servant there, let's get it right, that means a slave. Now, why, in the midst of a 40-verse chapter that's talking solely and specifically about marriage and marital issues, 
uh, personal issues like this, sexual issues, why would he suddenly stick in four to five verses talking about slaves? That would appear to be totally out of context. Now, Paul does make odd digressions at times in his writings, but I don't think that is the case here. As I say, we, we don't know exactly what he was answering. But one of the problems of being a slave was that if you were reasonably young, you were basically the, the, the personal body that belonged to your owner. And you, you see that really in Revelation 18 when it talks about how Babylon trades in the bodies of men. And what it means is slaves. That you were simply a body if you were a slave. And you could be used by your master or mistress exactly as they wanted. So one of the problems of being a slave and then becoming a believer was that you were the sexual property of your owner. And both men and women were abused in this way. Homosexuality was, was rife, lesbianism was rife, um, all kinds of perversion was going on. If you had a slave, well that slave was just a body to be used as you wished. And so it was pretty difficult to become a Christian. And we know that Christianity spread very strongly amongst the slave population of the Mediterranean world of the first century. What were these people to do? They couldn't, in one sense, refuse to be sexually used. And he's, I, th I think, in this context, that's why he's starting to talk about slaves. And that's why it's not out of context in this whole chapter, wedged right in the middle of this chapter, talking about marriage and sex and all that, when he starts talking about slaves. He says, are you called being a slave? Verse 21, care not for it. Don't, don't, uh, don't worry too much about this. But if you may be made free, well, use that, and by all means, be made free. And then he says, alluding, I think, to what he said in Romans 6 about baptism, that if you are called into the Lord, and we're baptized into the Lord, well, to the Lord Jesus, you are free. And he says, and don't forget, that if you are a free person, you're also not ultimately free, because you're Christ's body or slave to be used as he wishes. You are bought with a price. The blood of Jesus, 23. Don't be the servants of men. Don't be the slaves of men. Um, if you can avoid it. And he says, if you've been called in this situation, well, verse 24, therein abide with God. When he says, verse 20, abide in the same calling in which you were called, I don't think that he's just saying, well, don't try and do anything about it. You are called being a, a servant or a slave. Just accept it. Because he says in 21, if you may be made free, use it rather. Do that by all means. So I think he's saying accept the situation. That's a situation you are called in. Okay, it's not nice. It's wrong how you're being used. But just focus on the fact that actually you belong to the Lord. And that in the flesh, sure, you will be used. But you are the Lord's free person, and you have been bought, you have been redeemed with a price. All slaves dreamt about being redeemed, about some kind old granny coming along and paying a load of money and getting them out of slavery. And he says that's happened. You were bought with a huge price. The price, of course, is the blood of Jesus. And you are free to him. Now, 
This uh, is a, a difficult thing to accept, and I may be interpreting it wrongly, but I, I put in good faith to you my suggestion here. And the principle, I think, applies that we can find ourselves, when we are baptized, in a position that we find jars with our conscience. You think of people like Cornelius, um, who was a, a military man, etc., centurion, and the Ethiopian eunuch. Earlier you think of Daniel and the various high-flying positions that he was in in Babylon, Joseph in Egypt. They were all sort of put by God in situations where I suppose they, they had to do things which were not really what they would wish to have done as believers. And yet, he says, this is how God, verse 17, distributed to every man. And he says, verse 7, that every man has his gift of God. And the, the life situation that you find yourself in is in a sense a gift. Those slaves, in that awful situation they were in, well that was how God meant it for them to be. That was the framework of situation that he put them in. There are people who would dearly like to be married, and yet it doesn't mean they shouldn't try to be married, uh, but the point is their position, as is at the moment, is a gift from God. And likewise, there are people who lament bitterly how they are stuck in a marriage which they feel precludes them from serving God as they would like. Well, that is also a gift in the end from God. And this is, 17, what God has distributed to each of us. We're each given a calling and a frame and context in which to live life. And I think he must be alluding here to the parable of the talents that in one sense, we are all given something different to go and trade with. And one of those gifts, or one aspect of those gifts, is the fact that we are just given a life situation. And the whole art, and it is an art form almost, of spiritual life, is to not chafe at the bit about that and keep on dreaming of a better day over the rainbow, but to recognize that that is what we have been given and to work with it and to trade with that situation. If you can be made free, well, sure, use it. But accept that calling which you've been given. Now, we all, I think, would, would have to admit that in some ways we are in a situation in life that is not ideal. That is not ideally what we would like to have. But that's how it is. And... The point is to accept that and to realize that ultimately I am free. And as we think about the death of Jesus, this was the price that was paid to buy us, to make us free. And we are, in that sense, the Lord's free person. Free, and this is the great paradox, of course, of Romans 6, free not to do what we want, but to be his servant. And so there you are, cooped up, as it were, in the little room of your own cell, if you like, if you want to be negative, uh, of your own life situation that you're stuck in. And everybody has this, uh, has this in, in one sense or another. Even those who are apparently the freest of people, the most wealthy, uh, people with apparently great marriages, or people with great marriages, um, in other aspects of life, there is this sense that I'm stuck, that I'm trapped. I'm 
you see it particularly, I, I think, with uh, young mothers, with, with little toddlers. There's a great sense of being trapped. And yet, we have been bought out of that. My final uh, reflection uh, goes back to the idea of different levels. We're here to focus upon the cross, and we wonder why the cross, why did it have to be as it was? And, of course, God could have saved people as he wished, in any form. He could have just said, scribble the whole thing, sin and all that, and just scribble it. I forgive you, that's the end. He didn't, in that sense, need to have a son. And you could say, oh, yes, he did, because of all the prophecies and all that, and the types of the Old Testament. But to me, that answer only throws a question one stage further back. Well, yeah, okay, so why all that? Why did God, okay, he foreknew that this is the way he was going to choose, but why did he? Um, And I think that he wanted to give us salvation on the highest possible level. Not just eternity, because let's face it, immortality with the kind of life experience we now have would be a curse, actually. But he gave us what is called that great salvation, life and life more abundantly. There is in those verses and others the suggestion that there are levels to salvation, and we have been given the very highest one. And so it required, in that sense, uh, the way to that which God foresaw through his Son and through the sufferings of his Son and through the cross. And again, Jesus, faced with the choice of the cross, could have maybe gone another way. And I think that is what gives real poignancy to the whole experience on the cross when he could have called down 12 legions of angels, and particularly the struggle in Gethsemane to sweating blood, uh, that he could have done this. And yet he didn't. He chose the highest way. Philippians 2 talks about the seven stages of his self-humiliation and, uh, in a poetic sort of way, contrasts them with the seven aspects of his glorification. And he became obedient to death, even to the death of the cross. It's as if he could have stopped in those levels of uh, self-humiliation at some point. He could have said, okay, I'll die, give me a knife, I'll slit my throat, and that will fulfill, you know, the animal sacrifice type, that's how they were killed. He could have drunk uh, his hemlock or his poison in a classical sort of way, but he died the long-drawn-out way of the cross, and with all the mental suffering and pain of rejection and betrayal that went with it. Now, he did that so that we might attain that great salvation, that life, and that life more abundantly. Now, if that's what he has done, and he did do that, that filters through and its influence into our lives. Because we never again, if you grasp that, never again can we be minimalists, thinking, what can I get away with? What's the minimum? But rather, what's the maximum? And let me try, within the limits of my humanity, to give that.